0: Hello and welcome to Talking Opinions, I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. The New York Times spent the past week marking the 50th anniversary of its publication of the Pentagon Papers. Those papers exposed the lies US government officials from the president in the Rose Garden of the White House to sergeants in the killing fields of Khe repeatedly told the American people about the war in Vietnam. Daniel Ellsberg was arguably the Chelsea Manning of his day, for, as the Times reported in a commemorative piece on June 9, He used his access to classified information, as a military analyst at the Rand Corporation, to leak the Pentagon Papers in 1971. They duly vindicated prevailing suspicion that government officials were lying about the conduct and success of this war. More to the point, the grand deception those papers exposed. Seeded a suspicion of government that, alas, has spawned everything from anti government militias to QAnon kooks. Of course, it's bad enough that America got mired down in and then tried to lie its way out of this unwinnable war. But In addition to its demon spawn, the truly remarkable legacy of Vietnam is the confluence of Einstein's definition of crazy and Santayana's aphorism on history that America's 20-year war in Afghanistan represents. There is no denying the March of Folly, the war in Vietnam turned out to be, and the Times provided a valuable public service, with its retrospective on the publication of papers that exposed that folly. But I can think of no better way to mark this seminal anniversary than with reflections on a war that aped the one in Vietnam in every material respect. In April, President Biden declared his intent to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this year by hailing the end of the war in Afghanistan, which now has the dubious distinction of being America's longest war. Pursuant to his declaration, he ordered the withdrawal of all U.S. troops by that date. As it happens, though, I was in the vanguard of those who had been pleading for this withdrawal for nearly 15 years, because it was clear to us from as early as 2005 that the United States was fighting a patently unwinnable war, eerily reminiscent of... Vietnam. I have written many commentaries over the years, chronicling and bemoaning this fateful symmetry. The following titles alone to just five of them speak volumes. 1. Please spare us the Al-Qaeda obits, on December 5, 2005. 2. Meanwhile, over in Afghanistan, snatching defeat from the hands of victory. On September 18, 2006. 3. Obama saluting war dead will be the defining image of his presidency. On October 30, 2009. 4. WikiLeaks on US War in Afghanistan on July 27, 2010, and 5. Afghanistan. How many more US soldiers must die for a mistake? on September 19, 2012. This is why it came as no surprise to me in December 2019 when the Washington Post reported on a confidential trove of government documents which showed that, and I quote, Senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. Douglas Lute, a three-star Army general, who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers in 2015. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2400 lives lost," Lute added. Who will say this war was in vain?" Quote. You can see why so many commentators characterise this trove of documents as the Pentagon Papers, but I did not in fact I titled my commentary on this tragic military farce the Afghanistan papers US officials have always known this war is unwinnable on December 11 2019 my concern was that using Pentagon papers in this case might unwittingly spare civilian leaders the rod. After all, they're the ones who gave Pentagon leaders their marching orders. In other words, the war in Afghanistan has lasted as long as it has, far more because political leaders have been spinning military reports for political gain than because military leaders have been fudging those reports for military glory. Case in point was former President George W. Bush's decision to divert key resources to fight an equally unwinnable war in Iraq. Doing so clearly set the war in Afghanistan on a fated course to become the proverbial graveyard of yet another empire. I duly lamented this fate in the second of the five titles I listed earlier, from September 2006, and more to the point, here in part, is how I expressed my transformation of consciousness about this war, and I quote, Not so long ago, some of us considered the war in Afghanistan as much an unqualified success as we deemed the war in Iraq an unmitigated failure. But jihadi Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are beginning to surpass die insurgents in Iraq in their ability to bedevil U.S. efforts to stand up a democratic Afghan government. Alas, victory in Afghanistan may prove yet another casualty of the war in Iraq. End quote. Again, folks, that was my way of marking 9-11 way back in 2006, which is why I was so puzzled three years later, when, instead of cutting U.S. losses, Then President Obama escalated the war in Afghanistan by ordering the deployment of an additional 47,000 troops. I decried his decision in Obama escalates Afghan war. The die is cast on his presidency on December 2, 2009 as follows. I fully appreciate that Obama is fulfilling his campaign promise to fight and win this war, but prevailing politics have changed circumstances on the ground so much it would have compromised even a perfect military strategy. This makes his decision to continue fighting this war almost as foolhardy as Bush's decision to follow through with his invasion of Iraq even after it was clear there were no WMDs there." Truth be told, though, my respect for Obama was such that I retained forlorn hope that his decision was informed by the classified reports he received during the Hamletian strategy review he conducted before escalating. This, notwithstanding my informed view, that he was giving these additional troops a mission truly impossible, which was to train an Afghan army to defend the country and a police force to maintain law and order, all by July 2011, which he vowed in 2009 would be his drop-dead date to begin withdrawing U.S. troops. Sure enough, here we are, 12 years later, and I doubt even Obama would say, that the Afghan army is any more capable of defending the country today than it was when he escalated this war in 2009. Uh, by the way, I apologise for continually citing and quoting my I-told-you-so commentaries, <laughs> but in a world where everyone pretends to know it all, I find it helps to distinguish my, er, uh, opinions And so, with your indulgence, here in part is how I warned that Afghanistan would be thus in, without or even with, more U.S. troops. Failure in Afghanistan is likely on September 23, 2009. And I quote, The U.S. legacy in Afghanistan will be distinguished either by a terminally wounded national pride, as American forces beat a hasty retreat in defeat, following the Russian precedent, or by tens of thousands of American soldiers dying in Afghanistan's graveyard of empires as they continue fighting this unwinnable war, following America's own precedent in Vietnam. More troops only mean more sitting ducks for Taliban fighters. This is why Obama would be well advised to cut America's losses and run ASAP, let the Afghans govern themselves however they like, and rely on special forces and aerial drones to disrupt and dismantle Taliban and Al-Qaeda operations there. And quote. But that trove of government documents the Post reported on raised the Nixonian question that Obama has yet to answer. Namely, what did he know about the revelations in the Afghanistan papers and when did he know it? Of course, if even I could see the patent futility of this war in 2005, Obama hardly needed classified reports to see it in 2009. This is why Obama would be even more politically and morally challenged to justify escalating the war in Afghanistan than JFK and LBJ would have been to justify escalating the war in Vietnam. But Bush and Obama are not the only ones who have some splaining to do. <laughs> because before his black sworn election as President of the United States, Donald Trump spent years tweeting about the manifest folly of stupid American leaders wasting blood and treasure in Afghanistan and for people who show no appreciation. Yet, like Bush and Obama, Trump ended up doing in Afghanistan exactly what JFK, LBJ and Nixon did in Vietnam, namely keeping troops deployed over there to die for what he knew was a mistake. This moved me to vent my abiding outrage in Trump-aping stupid Obama who aped crusading Bush on war in Afghanistan on August 22, 2017. Apropos of which, Defense Department figures show that the blood and treasure Trump was so concerned about wasting Now amounts to 2,312 dead, 20,589 wounded, and nearly 1 trillion spent, respectively. When former Senator John F. Kerry was just a 27 year old veteran, He famously asked the most poignant and conscientious question about the manifest futility of the war in Vietnam. Namely, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Thanks to the Post reporting on the Afghanistan Papers, History will record that Jeffrey Eggers, a retired Navy Seal and White House staffer for Bush and Obama, asked the most poignant and conscientious question about the manifest futility of the war in Afghanistan, namely, what did we get for all of our lost blood and treasure? As it happens, the Financial Times reported what America got, in its edition on August 19, 2019, as follows. The Taliban, by some estimates, holds more territory than at any point since it was ousted following the 2001 invasion. Some analysts believe a full U.S. withdrawal could unleash a repeat of the brutal civil war and Taliban rule that followed the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s end quote in other words, after all that, America will end up leaving Afghanistan no better off than it was when US troops invaded twenty years ago. and now those troops are retreating <laughs> granted not quite in the ignominious way they retreated from Vietnam in 1973, but it speaks volumes that they are aping the way Soviet troops retreated from Afghanistan in 1989, namely, as vanquished imperialists with their tails between their legs. Meanwhile, Every commentary I've written over the years about the war in Afghanistan has had a corollary about the war in Iraq. This because, instead of learning the lessons of Vietnam, political and military leaders simply repeated similar lies and cover-ups which characterised the manifest futility of both wars. Therefore. I can think of no better way to sum up the military march of folly in Afghanistan and Iraq than to paraphrase the famous observation that is generally attributed to Spanish philosopher George Santayana, which is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That aphorism came immediately to mind last year when Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward revealed that Trump led a government-wide conspiracy to downplay the severity of COVID-19. As a direct result of the lies he and other officials repeatedly told, the United States marked the grim milestone of 600,000 deaths just this week in its ongoing war against this pandemic. Then, also this week, the New York Times reported that the way Trump famously pressured the Georgia Secretary of State to find him some votes was only the tip of the iceberg, because it reported on a confidential trove of government emails which showed that Trump led another government-wide conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, long before he incited his MAGA supporters to mount the insurrection of January 6. But forget about repeating the mistakes of history, because, as part of their cult-like fealty to Trump, Republicans appear to have pledged to whitewash all of his high crimes and misdemeanors from history. Only this explains them now blaming everyone from BLM to Antifa and the FBI for inciting that insurrection. Remarkably, Republicans are even attempting to whitewash the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, not just from public consciousness, but even from public school books. And sadly... They have millions of Trump's supporters believing that critical race theory, which merely examines how race has shaped public policy and cultural expression, is an attempt to impose the guilt of 19th century slave masters on modern-day school children. Mind you, if hypocrisy were still a moderating factor in Republican politics, there would be at least a little hesitancy in their ranks. After all, it is plainly hypocritical for Republicans to protest like religious zealots against critical race theory on the one hand, but support a Juneteenth holiday bill that codifies everything that theory represents on the other hand. But Continually conforming their politics to Trumpism means that such contradictions characterize everything Republicans do and say these days. In his dystopian novel, 1984, George Orwell has minions in the Ministry of Truth, rewriting newspapers and history books to fit the party's new narrative and groupthink. Well, the Republican Party is attempting nothing less than to make that Nightmare Orwell parodies come true. Its spinmeisters clearly believe who controls the past, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. But, if Orwell is too academic, you need only look to the notorious public indoctrination Taliban mullahs are lying in wait to reinforce in Afghanistan. Because the intentional projection inherent in these republican stunts is part of a cancel culture crusade that makes what the mullahs intend to do seem, uh liberal. (laughs) You've probably heard many commentators say, God help us, if a Trump with brains ever comes along. (laughs) Well, God help us, because he's here. His name is Tucker Carlson, and he hosts a political talk show on Fox News. More to the point, his show is proving a far more suitable apprenticeship for the presidency than Trump's reality TV show, ironically titled, The Apprentice, ever did. Because Tucker, the little is using his show to propagate far-right propaganda peddle self-serving lies, and persecute his critics in ways Trump could only ever dream of doing. I've watched his show uh, for informational purposes, and trust me, Trump really was an apprentice compared with Carlson, because Carlson is already indoctrinating millions of people five days a week with his Orwellian shtick. And he's doing it with the shrewdness of a Machiavellian prince and the charisma of a megachurch charlatan. So, if you think Trump had a ready-made cult to follow him into the presidency, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. The point is that many powerful and influential people just seem hell-bent on repeating the mistakes of history. This is why, if not the eschatological end times, we are certainly living in doomed times. Uh, That's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.